0: It is good to be with you all today. Um, we're a little bit in trouble because when I had preaching class, I don't think my, preacher, my professor knew what to do with me um, because we would preach a sermon and they would videotape the sermon. And then you would meet with the professor and he would go over your sermon and talk with you about what you had done and what areas you needed to improve in. The problem is I failed today with his suggestion to me. I left my earrings at home. My only suggestion from my preaching professor was that I needed to wear bigger earrings. (laughs) Wow, I know. I sat there going, really? That's all you've got to tell me because I knew I had a long ways to grow. But I had little pearl earrings on that day and I needed to wear bigger earrings. So anyway, we're in trouble because I don't have earrings on at all today. So, Thank you, Jeffrey, for reading the gospel lesson. Um, Jeffrey and I um, are, are preachers of a congregation. We're pastors, and so our sermons are pastoral. So to preach to a group of people I don't know is intimidating to me because I'm used to looking out there and seeing people that are like family to me. But I know that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So receive these words as a gift, and I hope they encourage you and challenge you in your call to serve Christ and the discipleship um, that you have with God. A few years ago, I was checking on my extended family through Facebook, and upon the recommendation of my cousin, Missy, I had just befriended my second or third cousin, Tommy. I'm not sure exactly what Tommy is to me and me to Tommy, But Tommy loves family history, and he knows a lot of stories about my mama's side of the family, the Hendrixes. I was thrilled to see pictures of my great-grandfather. I'd never seen him before. There was pictures of great-aunts, grand-cousins, and even my mama's daddy. So many pictures I'd never seen before, stories I'd never heard, like I was completely surprised to find out that my great-grandfather, Thomas A. Hendricks, was a trustee at Newtown School in northern Pickens County in South Carolina. All of his children, all ten of them, my great-aunts and uncles, from the oldest, who was my grandfather Bunk, who was born in 1887, yes, my grandfather was born in 1887, From Bunk to Casey, the youngest born in 1910, all ten of them, girls included, attended school. He made sure that they weren't stuck out in the farm working all the time, but he made sure that all ten of his children attended school. wasn't what I expected of my Hendricks family. You see, I'd only heard stories of moonshine and fistfights and hard, rough living. And in fact, among the brown and ivory pictures that my cousin Tommy posted, there is one of a family member standing outside in the woods, holding a sandwich in his right hand, smiling at the camera. Now, this ancestor of mine is not standing beside a schoolhouse, nor is he riding in a favorite car, I have one of those, nor is he leading a favorite horse, nor is he on the front porch of his home with the rest of his family. But there is my ancestor standing with a sandwich in his right hand with a moonshine still in front of him and three of them behind him. (laughs) Oh, how I wish this man and his brothers would have left those jugs behind. It would have drastically improved and enhanced life for the Hendricks family, for those jugs and jars made for a turbulent life, and much was lost. In the Gospel of John, Scripture paints a simple yet compelling image in the telling of the Gospel story of Jesus passing through the land of Samaria. Jesus is bone-tired. You ever been bone-tired? He's bone-tired from walking, and he sits down to rest beside one of Jacob's wells, and disciples run on into town to see if they can find something to eat. Samaritan woman comes to that well around noon, and she and Jesus talk for a little while, and of all things, of all people, She recognizes him to be the promised Messiah. Before she heads back into town, because she can't wait to tell others about him, about what she's found, she does this simple thing, which my ancestors should have done. She leaves her jug behind. Mind you, hers is a water jug. After meeting Jesus, she's no longer interested in carrying water back home for cooking, cleaning, drinking, whatever. After meeting Jesus, she completely sets aside her plans and what she has come to do. She lets Jesus interrupt her life. Anyway, she doesn't need the weight of that jug hindering her from racing back to town so she can tell others who she has found. What a powerful image for us during this season of Lent. For all of us here have been called to tell others about Christ. To tell them with our words. To tell them with our deeds. To share with others what life with Christ is like. To share with others about how our lives are daily transformed and reshaped by Christ. How we are called to serve Christ to others. But there are times when we're hindered from serving, What kind of water jugs are we lugging around that we need to leave behind so that we can serve Christ to the world? There are two biblical words when they are put together that rattle me when they're used to describe the followers of God. Hardened hearts. Sometimes a minister can carry around jugfuls of hardened hearts from the congregation. And sometimes a minister can carry around his or her own hardened heart. That's a jug or two that can be left behind. A hardened heart's impermeable. Nothing can get in. Nothing can change it. Nothing can reshape it. It's like a rock. You know what happens when you pour water on a rock? Water just runs off, makes for beautiful creeks and waterfalls in western North Carolina. You pour water on a piece of wood, the wood will soak it up a little bit, like our deck back home that needs one more coat of water sealant. (laughs) But if you pour water on a sponge, that sponge eventually soaks up all the water it can hold until it is saturated and can hold no more. But a hardened heart is like a rock. It shuts out, it excludes, it excludes God and it excludes other people. New Testament Nicodemus, he had a borderline hardened heart. He knew it all, he had it all figured out, at least he thought he did. He was a Jew who was very religious, but his religion had become so hard, fast, and sure that it was blinding him to the Savior in his midst. His heart needed to soften up so the words of Jesus could change his life. New Testament Samaritan woman without a name, on the other hand, she's completely the opposite. Her heart was open wide to the words of Jesus. I'm so surprised. Here she is a woman and he's a man. Man, how have men been treating her? How many husbands had she had? Five. But here she is at a well and she meets a man with the word of life, and she's willing to hear what he has to say. She's willing to listen to his words, to take them into her life, to think about them long enough to judge them to be true, and then to let them change her life. We really have no idea what happened to Nicodemus after his late-night encounter with Jesus, but we do know what happened to that unnamed Samaritan woman. Her heart soaked up God so much to the point that she set down her water jug and she ran to tell others about him. Oh, may our hearts be that open. More often than I want to count in the Bible, particularly in the book of Exodus, and I believe once in Deuteronomy, it says that God hardened so-and-so's heart. Usually it's the Pharaoh's heart. In Deuteronomy it's a king's. I'll let somebody else unpack that idea for another time. (laughs) However, I think that you and I today would be scapegoating if we were to go around blaming God for our hardened heart. What makes a heart hard? What makes a heart hard toward God? Fear can do it. (laughs) Fear of what God might ask us to do. Fear of what God expects us to do. Oftentimes we're afraid to pray. Well, we're not afraid to talk to God, to tell God what we're concerned about or what troubles our hearts and minds, but prayer is communication, right? And communication goes both ways. There's no telling what God might want us to do if we were to listen, like love our enemies, or pray for people who hurt us or who hurt our children, Why, God might even expect me to be patient with annoying people. (laughs) It's hard to do. Or God might be trying to tell us to be bold in our love. Or, you know, God might simply answer back and say, Endure for just a little bit longer. And then there's those big things that God might ask us to do. What if God were to ask me to be like Moses? To become a leader of God's people, but I don't have the gift of tongue. I stink in that area. I'm really good at math, though. Do I really want to answer that kind of call? You know, there are a lot of times the people of God were ready to do Moses' in, And think about, Elijah, how that turned out. Lord, just let me die. What if God were to ask me to be like the Apostle Paul? Oh, you think Paul had a good life? Read through it. Are you willing to travel to go and live in a different place than you had in mind so that you might tell others about God? And then when you get there to that place that God has called you and led you and you know God has led you there, then the people want to stone you and beat you up. Or what if you have given all that you have and you know that God has you right where God wants you to be, speaking God's words, and then only a handful of people believe in what you say? What if God were to ask you to be like Queen Esther, to be willing to speak for justice and truth, even if it meant that others were going to reject you, cast you away? What if God were to ask you to be like Stephen? You know, when they stoned Paul, he got right back up the next day. When they stoned Stephen, he didn't. Why are you preparing for ministry? Why are you doing ministry? Don't you see? The track record of those who answer the call of God definitely says this is no cush job. And there are no guarantees that the warm, fuzzy feelings that you had that led you to seminary, that led you to answer that call, you're not going to be able to ride those waves all the rest of the time. And I will tell you that fear and distrust in God when all the world unravels around you, even as you are diligently following God, The fear and the disappointment will try to harden your heart. But Jesus offers living water. May the living water of God wash away our fears so that we might risk to follow God wherever God might lead. You know, I thought God wanted to lead me across the world to be a foreign missionary. I'd forgotten about the local church. Try setting down those jugs of hardened hearts and fear. Leave them behind. You see, that hardened heart that excludes God, that's a dangerous road to walk. But how many times have we seen a hardened heart that excludes others? The woman at the well, she was not a Jew, she was a Samaritan, and it's no small matter that when Jesus asked her for a drink of water that she says back to him, how in the world is it that you, a Jew, are asking a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews and Samaritans did not mix and mingle, you know that. They didn't get along. A Jew despised a Samaritan. Samaritans were second rate at best. You could say that the Jewish heart was hardened toward the Samaritans. I've seen that kind of prejudice sitting in the waiting room outside of ICU at the hospital. There I am sitting with a family who's completely different from you and I. None of them have a college education. None of them have a high school education. They don't have future plans. They don't even know if they have enough food in the refrigerator to eat tomorrow and they don't really plan to go out and get a job to make the money so that they have enough money to buy the food, to pay the bills. They're just daily kind of people living in a wrong time, period. And they're rough people. They use rough language. They use drugs. They abuse alcohol. There's a lot of yelling in that family. As I'm sitting with them into the waiting room of ICU waiting room, walks in a Hispanic family. Now, mind you, if you're in the waiting room off of ICU, You have a loved one back there who's struggling for their life. And if another family comes in, they've got a family member too who's laying back there in ICU struggling for their life. But even sitting in that common place of trouble, you should have seen the eyes of the husband of the family with whom I was sitting. Distrust, leeriness, hate, indignation, annoyance were screaming from his eyes. I couldn't believe it. A definite, hardened heart. Who are our hearts hardened against? Who is it that we despise? Most of the time, you and I, our eyes don't convict us. But who is it that we judge to be second rate at best? So much to the point that we no longer care to share to serve the gospel and our lives with them. Who are our hearts hardened against? Tell me, who do you despise? Who is wearing you out? Who is wearying you out? Tell me, who is your heart hardened against? By the grace of God, we've got to put that jug down. We cannot serve Jesus, and I mean literally serve Jesus to others, when we insist on keeping a hardened heart toward another person. How many of you have watched Downton Abbey? Yeah, a few of you. It's that PBS show about the Grantham family that lives in that huge English estate that's trying to rival the Biltmore house back in Asheville. <laughs> they're waited on hand and foot by servants, and when they gather in the dining room to eat the evening meal, and they sit around that oval table, they're served by the footman, and he brings them their platters and bowls of food, and he serves it right there to them. That's what we are to be like with Christ. Serving Christ to others, to everyone. But I fear that there are those that whom we would refuse to serve, even though Jesus is the one who has invited them to sit around that oval table. You and I might try to find empty comfort in the fact that our hearts are not hardened toward God. We love God. God's the best thing in our lives. That's why we're here. We've been called but if our hearts are hardened toward others, then I imagine our hearts are hardened toward God. We cannot share God if our hearts are hardened. Years ago, a college student came to work with our children at the church, and she brought over this huge square block of clay. It was from the art department at Western And I didn't ask any questions because it was like the real stuff, real potter's clay. I had no idea how much that stuff cost. (laughs) But we'd put smocks on the children and put wax paper on the tables. And they would take that clay and they'd mash it together and roll it out. And they'd make little things with it. Well, that college student graduated and moved on. And then the people that began to work with the children after that They didn't work with the clay anymore, and that clay sat on the bottom shelf of that brown wooden bookcase in the Sunday school room forever and a day. You know what happened? It became hard, (laughs) hard like a rock. So when a young red-headed college student stayed one summer with us to work in the church, that was one of the tasks I gave him to do. You see, I grew up in South Carolina, and if you soak clay long enough with water, if you keep exposing it to water, working moisture into it, It becomes soft and malleable again, but it's hard work, and it takes time. And this student had all the time on his hands. (laughs) The living water that Jesus offers us can do that to our hardened hearts. Our hearts might be just as hard as the red clay dirt of South Carolina. Our hearts might be as hard as potter's clay left exposed to the wind and the air. But when the living water of God, provided by Jesus, is poured over our hardened hearts, they will start to soften up again. When that Samaritan woman recognized Jesus as the one, the Savior of the world, when she set everything down to serve him, to share him with others, her life was filled with a living water that would always quench her thirst. But did you take note That she did not set her jug down so that her life would be better. Her life had already been bettered by Jesus. She didn't leave the jug behind because she was tired of carrying it. She was so energized and enlivened by the words of Christ, I think she could have carried anything that day. She set the water jug down because her encounter with Jesus was so transformational that she couldn't keep quiet about it, that nothing else Could get in its way. May we be as unselfish with Jesus and as bold as the unnamed Samaritan woman. May we leave behind all that hinders us from serving Christ, from serving Jesus to others. What jugs and jars are you lugging around? (laughs) If you keep carrying them with you, there's going to be a lot lost. My ancestors held on so tight to their jugs and jars that they lost land, they lost family, some of them had to run away a thousand miles from home to hide. They lost a lot. If you set down those jugs, if you leave those jars behind, the things that keep you from serving Christ, there is much to be gained for the glory of God.